Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Trial Lawyer Podcast. I am your host, Gabriel White, um, hosting by myself this week. Um, and I was fortunate enough to uh, have here in my office uh, Representative Brian King, uh, who is the minority leader in the Utah House of Representatives. Uh, he's represented uh, District 28 in the Utah House of Representatives uh, for several years now, and he is also a prominent lawyer, uh, solo practitioner here in Salt Lake City, and so we had the opportunity to sit down with him and get his perspective on the upcoming legislative session. And it was very interesting to get Representative King's perspective on legal issues affecting trial lawyers in the state of Utah and how they come up uh, periodically in the Utah um, legislature and how the different representatives and, and state senators deal with these issues and how they can affect um, the residents of this state uh, in general and trial lawyers and our practice in particular. We we're very grateful to have Representative King, and he was very generous with us and with his time. And so without further ado, here is my interview of Representative Brian King. Welcome. Thank you. This morning. Thank you Good for joining us. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit, and I know that, you know, the sessions coming up starts uh, when next week? Yes, starts Monday. Starts Monday. And, um, you know, so you're pretty much planning on not... Uh, you got all your sleep saved up between now yeah, and we're for trying. Them. We're trying. I mean, it's a, it is an intense thing, and the hard thing about it, in some ways, is that my practice doesn't go away completely. I've got folks who help me uh, carry on and allow me to really reduce significantly what uh, I end up doing at the law office. But there's, you know, you can only do so much of that, especially when you're a solo practitioner like I am. So. Yeah, and it, I've heard it described as kind of being like in a seven-week trial. Yeah, I mean, that's essentially. true. That's, a, that, that's very similar to that. That's right. And I can imagine what that's like. I mean, I've never been in, uh, you know, a marathon like that. I've been in a two- or three-weeker and, you know, had situations like, okay, well, it's Saturday and I have a few hours, so let me see if I can resolve the concerns of 14 different clients who called me during the week and I couldn't get back to them. There you go. Yeah. Similar to that. Okay. Well, tell me a little bit about, I mean, you're the minority leader um, in the House, so um, obviously being in the leadership imposes certain requirements. I mean, I remember I met um, Dick Army once, and I asked him, you know, whether his his responsibilities in the leadership ever impacted his, his conflicted with his responsibilities as his district, and he was from or he represented a rural area in Texas, and he said, you know, so long as I don't mess with their guns, they really don't care what I do. <laughs> um, you know, how have you felt that conflict, I mean, or have you seen it? Well, District 28 is the district that I represent, and it's everything north of I-80 and everything east of 13th East, most of the University of Utah, Immigration Canyon, and a little bit of Summit Park. And it's a pretty uh, reliably Democratic district. It's not flamingly liberal. It's not as liberal as some in the in the state, but uh, it's it's. Um, I think that I represent it well in the sense that I uh, have a lot of folks in the district who come from a similar kind of socioeconomic background. We've got a lot of professionals. We've got a lot of relatively uh, well uh, educated and well. Uh, 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 
people who are well connected in the city and within the business community and and are known and so I try and keep in touch with those folks and my experience is that I do a good job representing them so I do spend an awful lot of time on leadership stuff but um, I think the folks in the district want a Democrat at the legislature who will be a voice for Democrats across Utah and I try and do that and it's a frustrating thing at times to see that you know you have 35 uh, percent or so of the Utahns voting for Democrats in Congress and <clears throat> I mean I, I think that reflects the sentiments of uh, Utahns certainly more than that in my district but um, you only have between 16 and 17 percent of the legislature uh, are Democrats and that's a we have a disproportionately low number of Democrats in the legislature. Something that ever since I was a uh and a political science student way back when up at Utah State has perplexed me. And maybe you can give me some insight on this. It's a little bit of a digression from the you know trial lawyer-related issues. But it seems like most states that have the situation where you have one pocket, you know, where that's really solidly one party, and then the rest of the state that's solidly another party eventually come to the conclusion that it's cheaper and easier to create one district or one one at least on the national level one house district that's solidly democratic and then a bunch of others that are solidly republican and obviously in the legislature you guys play a role in in dividing that up and so whether i I know you in the minority you guys may not have as much input in that as you'd like but I mean, why hasn't, I mean, when you look at Utah's legislative districts, it's it's bizarre. It's almost like if you look at the borders of of Mill Creek City, how it kind of cuts through streets and everything, and they've divvied up Salt Lake so many different ways, it's hard to tell who you're represented by. Why hasn't Utah gone to that model where I said, look, we're going to create one district where all the Democrats can be and have representation, and where we don't have to fight. Yeah. Well, it's pretty simple, I think. Um, it's not official, and what, what I'm about to say is not official, but I think most Republicans would acknowledge that what I'm about to say is accurate. The reason we have four districts cut the way they are, gerrymandered the way they are for Congress, is that the Republicans feel that they can win four districts and hold control of the congressional delegation. Now, I think that it becomes much more likely that the scenario that you've outlined, namely that there's a one congressional district that's outlined as being uh, a Democratic district and that the Democrats would hold relatively easily. The likelihood of that happening is going to increase significantly if and when Utah gets a fifth congressional seat, uh, a fifth so seat only, in the House. Only so many ways you can divide up the power. Exactly, pie, right? exactly. Yeah. And if you have a fifth seat you and you want to, as a Republican, draw the lines for those five seats in a way that uh, is most likely calculated to allow Republicans control of five houses uh, in Utah, five seats in Utah in the House, what you're going to end up with, in there's a, a significant possibility, if not likelihood, that what you're going to end up with is having two or potentially even three uh, Democratic because seats. Because it gets so competitive. Because and it, it gets, gets so diluted. Yeah. And, it gets, and it gets so expensive to run. And, yeah. And, yeah. So I, I think that, uh, you know, when we were, I went through the redistricting wars in 2011 when we did that. I was on the redistricting committee, and the Democrats were pretty much shut out of the process of congressional redistricting. Those 
lines, that information about how to redistrict in for our congressional seats in 2011, that was provided the majority party by individuals at the federal level. Mm-hmm. And um, we knew that. They weren't admitting that, but we knew that, and we knew that we as Democrats in the legislature at the time had no say. I mean, we, we had a say in the sense that we proposed certain things, and one of the uh, proposed di- ways of divvying up the, the state was exactly what you're saying. Salt Lake County itself is too big in population to be one congressional district. The congressional districts are around three-quarters of a million people, and Salt Lake County has a little over a million people, or at least had a little over a million people back in 2011. So there's no way to dra- to, to put Salt Lake County as its own district totally, but it would have been an easy thing to have Salt Lake County. Um, be Carve off Sandy and Draper. Yeah, and Harriman yeah. and West Jordan or something like that. Riverton, you could have done that if you'd wanted to and made it a relatively blue district. But the Republicans said, you know what, we think we can put this, we think we can draft this map in a way that puts four districts that are fairly reliably Republican. And of course, since then, that's been the case with the exception of the first couple of years when Matheson was still in office. Mm-hmm. So in 2021, which is when the next redistricting will happen, um, what remains to be seen is whether Utah's population growth is great enough compared to other states across the country that will be in line to get a fifth fifth congressional seat or not. We might. I think it's probably more likely that we won't. So in 2021, I think we'll see the same fight all all over again to try and have more uh, districts that are more fairly allocated in a way that gives a greater shot to some Democrats to get elected. Well, and I think, I think I mean, this is the last I'll, I'll delve into this subject because I think it's a bit a bit off topic, but um, I, I think it may be more likely than, than we, we realize with the, a lot of the tech companies that are coming in and, and you know, seeing a lot of growth. Now it's growth down in areas that are, tend to be more reliably red in the state, but those workers that are coming in from out of state are going to be more reliably blue. Yeah, no, I think voters. that's true. So I think as time goes on, that's true. Plus, the big unknown, of course, is the extent to which we have things happen in the next four years that uh, make it more likely that people who have voted Republican in the past may be a little less inclined to do so in the yeah, future. I, I, was, I was really surprised, I think, with everybody, with, uh, or a lot of people with the outcome of the presidential election in Utah. I mean, I... If you add the total of people who voted for Trump uh, with the total of people who voted for McMullen, um, you know, Hillary Clinton got less than 20% of the vote in the state. And that was with, I mean, I I remember I was sitting in church uh, the week before and the church released a statement that, I mean, it didn't say don't vote for Donald Trump, but like, because they don't endorse or or candidates, but... I mean, it came as close as they possibly could. To they were saying, less than enthused just, with Donald. Yeah, I was just saying, don't vote for... We, we endorsed the following issues, and they were all things that he had said, you know, like, we want people to be able to come to this country, and I, I can't remember all of the different particulars, but it was... I kept thinking to myself, I was sitting there listening to it, I said, this is their way of saying don't vote for Donald Trump, and people did anyway. Um, but Yeah, and, and it's hard to get away from those labels. We're very tribal in our thinking. Yeah, But I think um, you can only go so long when you have a track record, if you have a, develop a track record that's less than um, uh, 
that measures that less than measures up to what people expect and want and is a is a competent performance. I think people are going to be watching Donald Trump carefully over the next four years, and I'm not particularly optimistic. I don't think he's got a great track record either as a uh, from a character perspective or as uh, as being successful. But plus, he has no experience in government, so one hopes that people will will eventually reach that breaking point. I would have, th- I had thought that that breaking point They would have reached it long before Long before, that. you so know, when, so when certain recordings were released or when, you know, uh, certain business dealings came to light, I thought, okay, this is the moment. I'm with and you. I, I tend to be, you know, I come from a Republican background. At this point in my career, I, I probably am more uh, aptly described as a libertarian than a, than a true Republican, I tend to be fairly uh, socially conservative or socially liberal, and maybe a little more economically conservative. But um, yeah, I was surprised by that. But let me ask you a couple questions sure. that, uh, about legislative priorities this session. Uh, do you? How do you see? Um, I mean, from what you've heard, obviously the bills, uh, a lot of them probably aren't out yet, or maybe any of them aren't out yet. What, what do you see being perennial things that trial lawyers in this state need to worry about on both sides, plaintiffs and defendants? Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that's it's really interesting to be up there at the legislature, and, you know, I come at it like you from a, a trial lawyer perspective. I've been involved in the Utah Association for Justice for years. I'm a former president of the Utah Association for Justice. I'm the year before I was elected back in 2008, I was the president of the organization. We changed the name that year from the Utah Trial Lawyers Association to the Utah Association for Justice. And I've represented claimants in various contexts, whether tort cases or in breach of contract. The last 20, 25 years, I've represented folks who've had denied life and health and disability claims, so it's more been in the nature of breach of contract cases. And one of the fundamental tenets of us as trial lawyers is that we uh, require personal accountability and responsibility for one's actions. You know, we hold, we, we're proud of this idea that we hold wrongdoers accountable. We're an essential cog in the machine of how that happens in our American society and in our justice system. I'm proud of the role that we as trial lawyers play, and I don't care whether you're on the defense or the plaintiff's side. The point is that what's really critical is that we give individuals a day in court to uh, both air their grievances and bring claims that they think they have and to defend themselves against those mm-hmm. claims. And I have great respect and affection for so many of our brothers and sisters on the other side of the uh, bar on these issues in the sense that they work uh, doing defense work. Some of my very best friends are defense lawyers. Yeah, and when I, for the podcast, when we use that term trial lawyers, mean it in the more broad sense. Yeah. In fact, the two the two attorneys that I work on the podcast with me are both defense attorneys yeah, good. Good. over at Snow Crisp. But, um, and, you know, I, and I like those folks. And, yeah. And, and so here, here's what I'm puzzled by at times up at the state legislature. There's a lack of appreciation for the importance of the role that trial lawyers in the broader sense plays in adjusting differences in in resolving in in sort of being the oil between the gears of our society we as lawyers whether we're trial lawyers or other types of lawyers but particularly as trial lawyers i think 
take very seriously that responsibility. And we understand the importance of it. If you can't have individuals feel confident about being able to resolve their differences by going to a fair, impartial tribunal and getting someone who hasn't been, you know, had their ear whispered into by one side or the other, have been influenced improperly by one side or the other, to hear your case and decide it, you've got a problem in that society. And we appreciate that, I think, very much as trial lawyers. We uh, respect the judiciary, support the judiciary, a fair and impartial judiciary. We have that in Utah, fortunately. I think one of the great assets for the state of Utah that has been in place for generations now and continues to be in place is a really high-quality judiciary. I'm grateful for that. One of the things that frustrates me about our legislative, my legislative colleagues is that they really, not many of them, bring an appreciation of those things to their jobs. And I see over and over again bills being presented that try to basically, from a legislative perspective, uh, cut with a butcher knife rather than allowing trial lawyers to do their work to cut with a scalpel. Mm -hmm. And it can take the form of uh, efforts to uh, impose immunity. It can take the form of uh, more medical malpractice uh, protections for the uh, Utah Medical Association and for the Utah Hospital Association. And these are, I know the folks who are in the U- UMA and the UHA, and they're both very good organizations that do an awful lot of good. But at times, not all the time, but at times they come to us at the legislature and are looking for special interest kind of legislation and favors that benefit their members in a way that is not in the interests of Utahns because it, inf- it, it impacts, it cuts back on the accountability and personal responsibility that the members of those organizations, whether it's professional medical professionals, whether it's hospitals, um, should have to us and, and the degree to which they should be uh, responsible when mistakes are made. So, And now just a brief break to hear a word uh, from our sponsor, the Law Offices of Gabriel K. White. The Law Offices of Gabriel K. White provides extraordinary service for a reasonable fee. Other personal injury law firms will take a third of your recovery, even if they don't do any work to settle your case. The Law Offices of Gabriel K. White doesn't operate that way. Our fees depend on our risk, which means that we charge you less if your case settles sooner. Any new injured clients will only have to pay a 25% fee if we settle or resolve the case without filing a complaint or other paperwork with a court, arbitration, or other panel. Compared with what other personal injury law firms charge, that's a savings of over $8,300 on a $100,000 case. Why pay more? If you have been injured in an accident, call the law offices of Gabriel K. White at 801-810-9491. Yeah, it's always struck me as odd. I mean, you know, I'm fairly recent to the medical malpractice arena, but it's always struck me as odd in the, you know, you put an automobile in someone's hands and they go out and make a mistake and, and, and you know, cause someone uh, millions of dollars in harm and, you know, they're responsible for every, every harm they cause. On the other hand, you put a scalpel and a buzzsaw and a bunch of anesthetics in the hands of a doctor and turn them loose on somebody who's unconscious and they're only responsible for you know, this up to this limit of what damages they cause. And I thought, I've always thought, well, if it's a, 
it's obviously a more dangerous activity. Right. Uh, why would we, you know, and uh, obviously it's not the doctors themselves that are the ones that are paying for all of this. It's the insurance company that right. that that pays for errors that are made because everybody, you know, unless you're out of your mind, you have insurance. I have, I carry malpractice sure. insurance. I'm sure you do as sure, well. Sure, I do. And um, because people make mistakes and, and that happens, but... Um, but it, that's always struck me as odd. But I mean, is that something that you see every year? I mean, it, are, are they coming well, asking for more protections every year? Pretty much. I mean, not, there's there's always this uneasy balance between the trial lawyers and uh, a lot of the insurance industry. Whether mm-hmm. it's uh, and I say the Utah Medical Association, it's it's obviously not the Utah Medical Association per se that. Um, is paying the bills out on these doctors that on occasion make errors and are responsible in malpractice cases when malpractice claims are brought against them. It's UMIA, it's Utah Medical Insurance Association, or some other malpractice insurer that is going to be the one that steps up to the plate. But the point is, there's that degree to which there's an uh, unending battle between the two because each side has pieces of legislation that they want to bring. That doesn't trouble me too much. I mean, that's just inevitable. As you mm-hmm. have court cases come down that require legislation to tweak a result or to deal with an inequity that has come to light because of the court case, I'm fine with us at the legislature trying to uh, tweak the balance or fine-tune that adjustment uh, between those two competing interests. And they're valid competing interests. Mm-hmm. And part of our job at the legislature is to make choices as circumstances arise that require revisiting those balances and, and adjusting them. What I'm more concerned about is well, we had, for example, a bill come before us last session that um, we've already had in Utah for many years pretty much blanket immunity from a product's liability standpoint for gun manufacturers. Mm-hmm. There was a bill that came before us that made it even more immune, even, granted even greater levels of immunity. There was no good reason for it. The bill sponsor, at, when asked, well, what's the reason for this? Is there something that's come up that give, has given us a reason to think that we need to do this? No, I can't point to anything. It just seems like a good idea. <laughs> well, you know, from my perspective, and I don't mean to impugn the motives of the bill sponsor because I don't have any doubt that he was acting in good faith and he's a friend, but I, I sort of found myself thinking, you know, I'm not here to sort of carry forward an ideological agenda just to promote the interests of one industry or another, especially I'm not here to do that when there's no problem that's been demonstrated. Right. So I voted against that bill, but I, I noticed that one of my colleagues, a good friend who uh, has an R behind his name, and had the courage to stand up and vote against it. And he spoke about it, and he said, you know what, this is just unnecessary. And he talked about it in the same way that we as trialers do in terms of uh, personal accountability and responsibility. And he ended up in an election in the next, immediately after that, um, he had an intra-party challenge, and his ch- one of the main things that his intra-party challenger, his Republican challenger, threw out at him is, this guy's anti-gun. This guy is wow. not protecting our rights, our Second Amendment rights as Utahns. And I thought, well, I won't use the term, some terms that I could use, and that I don't think are, I don't think that was a fair characterization of my colleague's position on that. 
but, but the point is that troubles me when you have special interests being able to come in and without, any, without presenting any requirement or, or being required to present any reason why we should change the law. They change the law simply because it's in their self-interest to do so. It's not to fix a problem. It's just to insulate themselves from liability. That troubles me a great deal, and I see that over and over again. Well, and let me ask you a question. And one of my, this one of my colleagues will kill me if I don't ask this question. <laughs> um, in Utah, it seems like we have a pretty clear example of a organization that um, has a monopoly um, in the healthcare field, and that that may drive a lot of these. Um, decisions. Uh, any idea why there has not been? I mean, it seems like if you had something like seventy or eighty percent of a market as isolated as the Utah medical market would be controlled by one entity, if you had that in another context, you'd have an investigation from the attorney general or from the feds as to you know whether or not that needs to be broken up. Any idea why? You know, there's not some response to that. Why, why there's not some investigation into whether or not there's an IHC has a monopoly over the healthcare industry, or whether, um, you know, it, even even something as simple as whether or not they still deserve, given that monopoly position, they still deserve tax exempt status. Yeah. Um, well, I have a couple of thoughts about that. First is, <clears throat> we've seen across the country that. Uh, efforts to um, really be aggressive in antitrust areas have been sort of gone ahead in fits and starts the last few decades. There was a time when there was a lot of attention given to antitrust and it was sort of this burgeoning area in the 60s and 70s. I think there was a lot of momentum in the area of trying to break up some of the biggest institutions that had uh, high levels of monopoly control in various fields. And and we've seen at times concerns expressed on the federal level about that kind of stuff with mergers of large entities that if they had gone through would have resulted in, in the minds of many people, too great a, a, controlling, a controlling share of the market. And sometimes things have stopped, been stopped dead in their tracks by threats to sue or failure, refusals to give authorization to mergers, but other times we've seen them go ahead in a way that I think causes people problems. So I, I think we're a little ambivalent about how to handle that at the national level, and I think that exists at the state level too. I also think one of the other things that goes on is in order to really take that kind of large controlling share player on, you've got to be willing to expend some real political capital and you've got to be willing to expend some real legal resources. And I don't know that um, we've seen that political will here in Utah for Intermountain. For, uh, the but, but the legislature does have the authority to investigate whether or not tax-exempt status is appropriate, right? Yeah, I think that we, we have the ability to authorize that sort of an audit. Um, if we said to our legislator auditor general, we want you to look into this, we could sick the legis legislative auditor general on that issue and have them give a report back. We've seen our legislative auditor general's office, which is separate from John Dougal as the state auditor. Right. Um, we have our own legislative auditor general, and he and his staff are really, really good people. John Schaff is his name. 
And I've worked with John now for the time that I've been in leadership now for over two years and uh, going into my second two-year term as leader of the caucus. One of the things that I'm impressed with John and his staff is they'll do whatever we ask them to do, and they do a thorough job of it. We have coming out next week, I'll give you some breaking news, we have the audit findings from our auditor, legislative auditor general about the Utah Office of Anti-Discrimination. Oh, wow. UALD. And uh, there's some very interesting findings there. I think people, trial lawyers particularly, who deal with employment issues will want to be looking at that because there's some very good uh, stuff there. But, but the, the point is, here's what I want to say about Intermountain. If you're a big player, like Intermountain is, and they're not the only ones, but they are the example that you've chosen to ask me about, <clears throat> and you have brains, you make sure that you exercise some self-restraint and self-control in how you swing your weight around in the market. My perception, and I, I deal with uh, Intermountain a little bit on both the select health side in terms of their payer, their mm. insurer side, and of course the Intermountain provider side, there are a lot of people who have complaints about both select health and the provider side, the Intermountain provider side. But there are a lot of ways in which I think people feel uh, justifiably that those entities do a pretty good job for the citizens of the state of Utah. Can they improve their performance? Sure. Do they sometimes perhaps abuse the power that they have within the system? Perhaps. I'd be interested in getting information about how that happens if it exists. But at this point, my perception, and I'm just speaking personally, sure. my perception is that Intermountain has not um, been so aggressive in throwing their market share weight around that it's caused people within the legislature <clears throat> or within the executive branch or within the, um, the prosecutorial, you know, the investigative branch from the perspective of the attorney general's office or the county attorney's office, that they are, there haven't been circumstances come to light that have caused serious investigation of Intermountain's uh, market share uh, based on what they've done to date. Now, should we look into things because there are things out there? I don't know. I mean, I'd like I'd, I'd be always interested in knowing facts. If those kinds of those reasons to believe that those problems exist are out there, I want to know about it. But my own experience with Intermountain is that they they do a lot of good. They um, I, I, I sue health insurers for a living. Mm-hmm. Select Health is the health insurer I have for my law firm, and my experience in dealing with Select Health is they're about the first people that I'd pick to deal with when I have a disputed uh, medical insurance claim because my experience is that they listen to my complaints as an advocate for a uh, claimant who thinks that his claims have been wrongfully denied, and I uh, have on occasion gotten them to reverse a denial, which is a lot more than I can say for the United Healthcare's and the yeah. Cigna's and no, the Blue Cross and Blue Shields of the world. So, so I mean, you know, I think you're, I think that it's based on your experience. And look, there are people out there listening who may listen to this who say, what in the world universe are you living in, dude? And they may have experiences that are otherwise. So I'm not saying that that Intermountain's wise snow or Select Health's wise snow. I don't think that's true. But like anything else, any other entity and organization, and that is they're filled with a lot of good people and they're filled with some bad folks too who abuse their authority at times. So, um, you know, I'm always on the lookout and I'm always willing to listen to people who say, look, you've got a problem you're not aware of and I'll bring you some information that make you aware of 
a problem that we've got here in the state of Utah in dealing with blank company or blank entity, let me know. Um, I don't know that uh, Intermountain's on that radar in the minds of most folks up at the legislature and the AG's office or in the executive suite at this time. Let me ask you about something else. So it seems like last it might have been last legislative session or the legislative session, uh, session before that, there was an effort to have uh, lawyers regulated by Doppel instead of through the bar. Yeah. Do you see that coming up again? <coughs> I think that would be really unlikely, simply because... I, mean, it was, I know it was something that the bar, when they heard about oh, it, yeah. saw... The, I mean, the Supreme was, Court. There was the, panic yeah, that yeah, went yeah. through that office. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that we, again, I think we are lucky to have in Utah is a is a bench that really, the way we choose our judges I, is, I think, really uh, one of the best in the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a process by which the, the a group of individuals who have, uh, some of them are judges, some of them, most of them are lawyers, I think, and some of them are lay people, get together the Judicial Nominating Commission, and they get together and they come up with names that are presented uh, and rec- as recommendations to the governor for who should serve on the bench in various capacities, whether it's the district court or whether it's the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court. And those individuals are, in my experience, not uniformly, supremely qualified. I mean, you have some problems creep in there occasionally, but... I've been really, really impressed with the quality of candidates that we've had and the quality of the judges that the governors in the state of Utah have chosen. One of the things that i got to tell you, I mean, we've had uh, Republican judges now for close to 40 years, uninterrupted in office. But my experience with them, including Governor Herbert, going back to Governor Huntsman, Governor Walker, Governor Levitt, and Governor Banker, who are the last five uh, governors that we've had is that they really work hard to make their choices mm-hmm. for uh, judges outside of an ideological vacuum. You don't have replicated in Utah what you have at the federal level in terms of these ideological fights about our judges. And I know uh, that individuals who, if they affiliated publicly with a party, would affiliate as Democrats and have at times in their lives been affiliated in the past as Democrats are serving in some of the highest courts that we've got in the state of Utah. Yeah. And I appreciate that. So, and the reason I mentioned the, the judge, the judges, and when we're talking about the bar, is that right now the Supreme Court, of course, regulates our Utah State Bar. Absolutely. And and we're grateful for that. I think for the most part, as uh, lawyers, I think that the lawyers in the state of Utah feel that that's a an arrangement that works well. I serve on the Judicial Conduct Commission right now. I'm the chair of the Judicial Con- Conduct Commission. And, we just met earlier this week in one of our regular meetings, and um, I, I say that simply because I think that the judiciary and the bar regulates itself pretty darn well. We have problems, of course, both with judges and lawyers, and when those situations arise, there are mechanisms in place to, as quickly as reasonably, as, as quickly as is reasonable under the circumstances, identify those individuals and I think take action to remediate them or weed them out. And uh, I, until you present to me a more compelling argument for why we should move regulation of the, uh, of the bar or the bench away from where it is currently, you're not going to get my support. And I think most of the folks up at the legislature feel the same way. Well, and, I, and I, I, I'm in the camp of, <coughs> of, you know, the panicked folks that see... 
Every time the legislature starts talking about doing something with the judiciary or with the lawyers, that's when I start to get nervous, yeah. and that made me nervous, the idea of changing that. The other thing that keeps me up at night, I have a lot of colleagues through uh, the ABA and different organizations I belong in that practice in states like Nevada where they have ju- a long history of judicial elections. Yeah. And just Boy. seeing the amount of, you know, uh, corruption that goes on on almost a daily basis to the point where it just becomes... I mean, it's not even noteworthy. I right. have colleagues in Nevada that tell me, you know, there are three state court judges in this state that I think I can trust, yeah, that I'll get a fair shake in front of them, and that's it. Do you, and and I know there periodically have been movements in, you know, nationally to push for more judicial elections, which, again, is one of those issues that I think keeps trial lawyers in this state up at night. Right. Do, do we see that at all in Utah, or is that something we've been fortunately saved from. I don't think we see that in Utah. I, I've spoken to this several times up at the legislature, not because there has ever been a bill to move toward elections, but because I want what you're saying. I want to be clearly on record um, at any opportunity that we're talking about the judiciary in Utah. And I've said this many times. We've never had a bill to move to elections, but when the topic of the judiciary comes up in the House of Representatives, I am quick to stand up and say, we could have elections, and it's not the way to go. It's just pandemonium. Well, I mean, and, and, you, you get know, judges with lists of donors yeah, up at the bench. And absolutely. Say, oh, yeah, well, uh, you're, for, you're with uh, what firm? Uh, That's right. Uh, let, me, uh, let me consider your motion, and they go down the list. And, That's right. You know, I think your motion's denied. Yeah. You know? and, and one of the things that we do have... People need to keep in mind, we do have elections in Utah. The retention elections are not sure. meaningless. Sure. And I think that one of the things that we've done to make those retention elections more meaningful is to put in place that JPEC process, the yeah, Judicial Performance th- Evaluation what do you think Commission. About that? I think it's a good commission. It needs to be tweaked. One of the things that we saw in the last election was uh, Judge Chan, who I have had experience before, and I have no... Uh, negative feelings about my experience before Judge Chan. Yeah. I mean, this was a case that I lost, and I took to the Supreme Court, actually, and uh, and lost again, you know. So, you know, Judge Chan, from my perspective, um, was vindicated in her ruling, and, and she was very professional with me. She didn't strike me as being either um, uh, uh, irascible or, or uh, discourteous or... Uh, lacking in intelligence or analytical skills. I mean, she did her job, and I was on the short end of the stick, and I was unhappy about that, but I certainly don't hold it against her. And so one of the things that even though she got a negative report from JPEC, you saw a lot of members of the bar come to her defense and say, no, 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 I mean, there may have been some problems initially because of her background not being as extensive in some areas of the law that she was later called to work in as a judge than than they could have been but she's learned as she's gone along well look there's a learning curve for every judge that doesn't trouble me so the fact that she was retained i think is an indication uh that what jpec says doesn't necessarily uh dictate what happens to a judge and there were a lot of people who were unhappy with the jpec recommendation for her and i think what will happen is the jpec recommendation they, were, they pointed out some things that perhaps we can change in terms of how JPEC does its evaluations. I've spoken to the JPEC people, and they're taking to heart some of those complaints and are working to put in place some changes that will make that process better, too. So, you know, it's a, it's a continual 
uh, evolution of uh, making better how we go about conducting business within the judiciary and within the bar at the state of Utah. Um, we're in great shape, I think, as a, as a bar, generally speaking. I think for the most part, the legislature recognizes that, and the legislature is taking a hands-off approach in terms of how the bar and the bench regulate itself themselves, and I'm glad for that. I hope that continues. Well, just, uh, just and I know you've been very generous with your time. One more question I wanted to ask you, um, and then I want to put in a little bit of a plug for your practice because I, I – uh, you you are my go-to guy for referrals for the kind of work you do because you. it's it's yeah, I, every client I've ever referred to over there has been uh, fantastic had fantastic uh, reviews and and you're the the expert in that area but um, I, during the legislative session when you have such a grueling process it, are there any sort of morning routines or or, or things that you do every day to keep kind of things going i mean are you a roll out of bed and read the you know and read the trip kind of guy <laughs> are you uh get up and you know uh, go for a run kind of I, guy I, I ought to be more get up and go work or, out or, or a J- meditator guy, yeah. meditative kind of guy what, what's I, your thing? i ought to go work out at steiner more often than i do but the problem that you have is you end up standing up late answering emails the email email is just a incredible um uh, takes a lot of time to keep up with the email but i i usually get up and uh try and take a look at um the tribune or uh there are a couple of digests for what is utah political news that's worth taking a look at somebody told me corn uh, corn corn political cornflakes is good utah policy daily is pretty good i like i look at both of those try to look at those each day um you know, our days start pretty early. Some days we have uh, committee meetings starting at 7.30 or 8, uh, and I usually get up there before those meetings start, so I don't have a lot of time, but I, I do try and take a quick look at the news. I'll tell you one thing I'm worried about. The, the session starts Monday, and I've been preoccupied, as I think many of us who are political junkies have been preoccupied with what's going on at the national level. Yeah. I can't get distracted <laughs> by Donald Trump. I can't afford to, and yet it's it's hard though. Oh, I mean, you can't avert your eyes from the trap. The, from there's, the there's something new every day. It's a train you know? wreck every day, <laughs> and I don't see that ending. I, I don't mean, see I, that ending. You know, I, I mean, this is coming from a guy who normally would vote for the you know Republican presidential candidate. You know, pretty much straight across. But this was one year where I just couldn't bring myself to do that, and I, I you know. And it's just bizarre to see one thing right after another. And you keep thinking, surely this is, you know, during the election, it was like, surely this is it. Okay, surely this is the end and there'll be a swift decline from here. And now we think, you know, I, I saw there was a Saturday Night Live thing where I think um, Alec Baldwin's doing a fantastic job portraying Donald Trump. I do too. Um, of course, Trump he, thinks just the opposite. He, no, he hates it. But he, I saw, I saw that he he shakes Mike Pence's hand, the guy who's playing Mike Pence's hand, and he says, "Mike Pence, I love you, Mike Pence. You're the you're the reason I'm never going to get impeached." <laughs> like that. And so you know, I, I I guess we you know we we got to weigh options before we hope no, for it's outcomes. True. But it's um, true. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's definitely a distraction. I can see that. It'll be it'll be fun to watch what happens. Well, but but during the session it'll be a lot of work. Yeah.
Well, we appreciate you doing that work. Um, as I said, uh, law offices, Brian King, I, I, you are my go-to referral when it comes to ERISA benefits, um, healthcare problems. I, I told one of my colleagues, a lot of my colleagues, since I opened my own shop here, um, you know, the law offices of Gabriel K. White, just getting started. A lot of my colleagues are really generous in sending me referrals, and there's been a couple of times where I've said, you know, I could, I guess, study up and learn and do that, but if it were me, for my situation, it was my family member, I'd send him over to Brian because he is the expert in this area, and he'll be able to tell you in five minutes things that it would take me days to research and figure out. So, um, you. you know, I would definitely recommend any of our listeners uh, who have those issues give your office a call. I appreciate that. That's kind of you. We It is a complex area of law. Uh, I love representing folks who have had li- denied life and health and disability claims because they're so often really in desperate straits and they have no place else to turn. I do all this work on a contingent fee like so many of us do as trial lawyers. And, uh, you know, it's nice to be able to go home and know that you've been able to help some folks uh, and not put them at risk for if you have a bad outcome, being even more in the hole than they already are. So. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's good. Well, thank you so very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. This is Gabriel White, just letting you know that we appreciate your time and listening to the Trial Lawyer Podcast. Please uh, take a moment and hit that button uh, on your device there to subscribe so that you'll be able to have each new episode as we put it online downloaded to your device so you can keep up with all the new things that are happening for uh, trial lawyers here in the state of Utah and uh, just generally. Uh, We're very grateful to Representative Brian King for taking the time to come on the show and thank you again to you for listening and uh, we'll see you next time.